Let's pray together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Father, we come to your word this morning and we pray as we study just the depths and the riches and the glories of the gospel that you would not let us be people who who hear, who simply receive and are not changed by the glorious work of your Son. We pray that we would be people, Father, who do not, uh, as James says, uh, look in the mirror and forget what we look like immediately, but those who hear the word and do the word. And Father, as we get to just behold the greatness of the gospel, we pray you would clarify in every mind in this room the wonderful depths your son has gone to for us and the forgiveness and mercy that that should give birth to in us. We pray, God, you would help us to live lives that reflect your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1800s, there was a man named James Smith who was a slave near Richmond, Virginia. Uh, And Smith wasn't just a slave, he was also a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. And as a slave, you can imagine, he endured all kinds of unspeakable torments common for a slave, but he also endured some specific torments because of his faith in Christ. So he was constantly threatened and beaten. He was separated from his family and his children, but he was also regularly whipped for preaching the gospel to his fellow slaves. His master, in fact, put limits on how often Smith was allowed to pray, how often he was allowed to meet with other believers for worship. Uh, And these are limits that Smith did not obey. So one day his master basically decided, I'm just going to beat the Christianity out of him. And he commanded one of his overseers to lash Smith in the back 100 times. And he did. Later that night, recovering from his 100 lashes, Smith spent his evening praying for the soul of the man who had whipped him, praying that God would forgive him. In 1956, a missionary named Jim Elliott, some of you will be familiar with, was killed by a group of indigenous tribesmen in South America who he'd been trying to minister the gospel to. And three years later, his wife Elizabeth lived among that very tribe as a missionary and continued the work her husband had started, and she ministered the gospel to the very men who had murdered her husband. If you read her autobiography, it's, it's very clear. She bore no bitterness against these men for the crime they had committed. She had forgiven them. And the question for us clearly is, how is that possible? How in the world could someone whip you a hundred times? How in the world could someone murder your husband and you find somewhere in your heart to forgive them? someone who treated you so horribly. And we're going to find the answer in our passage today. Today we're continuing our walk through Matthew's gospel. or at the end of Matthew chapter 18, and Jesus has been teaching his disciples about 
life under the gospel of the kingdom. So last week, Jared preached and we saw Jesus establish this, this model for how to handle it when someone sins, when, when someone, a member of our church sins, how do, we, how do we respond? How do we win them back to a life that reflects the gospel that they proclaim with their lips? And this week, it's, it's really, it's the same issue, but on the flip side. So, so today, this, this passage is, is about uh, not the one who sins, but the one who is sinned against. When we see someone in sin, we must call them back to a life that reflects the gospel. But also, Jesus is saying now, when you are sinned against, your response must also reflect the demands of the gospel. Our text this morning is, is so simple. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's so simple. It's so straightforward. And so our outline today is going to be super, super simple, super straightforward. We're going to look at three things. Uh, this is, uh, you, you might think I stole this outline from Jared because they all start with a P and there's three, but I didn't. I came up with it. First, we're just going to look at the parable. Jesus tells a parable. We're just going to walk through it and we're going to note the details of the story. So uh, really, we're not going to get to meaning. You're going to be like, but this, this. Hold on a second. Just wait. We're just going to look at the parable. We're going to kind of collect the puzzle pieces, see what pieces we have before we put them together. So first, we're going to look at the parable. Second, we're going to consider the picture. That's where we step back and we'll ask, what is the meaning? What is, what is Jesus showing us here? What, what picture do these puzzle pieces make? And then third, we'll look at the point, how we ought to respond. So that's it. The parable, the picture, and the point. So we'll start with the parable with a question actually that leads up to the parable here in verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So here, uh, hearing this teaching on church discipline, the passage that uh, Jared preached on last week, Peter has a, a pretty reasonable question about the limits of forgiveness. How far does this go, Jesus? And it, it's, it's, it's pretty practical. And in fact, I, I don't want to beat up Peter. I, I think he's actually, the, the number he's coming up here with here is, is not like, you know, he's not like he's trying to go easy on, on himself. It's Seven times is kind of a lot, right? So uh, surely he's asking, there, there must be an end. There must be some maximum to our forgiveness. There must be some limit where we say, okay, we're done forgiving. We're not going to keep doing this. And Peter, again, suggests a reasonably high number. He says, as many as seven times. Uh, I remember I was in high school. Uh, I had a buddy who I would pick up on the way to school. We'd carpool together. And he was a bit of a prankster, so he would do this thing. Uh, where he would uh, sneak around the side of my car uh, and then like get right next to me and then like jump up against the window and like bang on it. Uh, and something you need to know about me is I jump scare very, very easily. And I have no control of my body when this happens. So every single time I'd like jump out of my seat, hit my head on the roof and yell. Uh, and he thought that was hilarious, of course, because it is. Uh, and he did it regularly throughout the school year. So I just persistently hit my head on the roof of my car and yelled. And I found myself just experiencing the stress level every time I was waiting for anyone, whether it was him or anyone, just like, what's going to happen? Just angst that was built up in me. Uh, and I will be honest, I got a little bit tired of it. I think that's reasonable. 
I think, I mean, it w- I was tired of hitting my head, of almost having a heart attack. I, by the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, I was not feeling very forgiving. And that's, that's a, obviously a silly example. But imagine a situation in which you are actually sinned against. Not a friend playing a prank, but someone actually maybe slanders you or does violence against you or steals from you. All kinds of different sins that we would say, oh, no, 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 seven times. That's quite a lot. In fact, uh, the rabbinic tradition, uh, Peter, Peter and Jesus would have been aware of this. The rabbinic tradition taught that you only had to forgive someone three times. So the fourth time, you don't have to forgive. And Peter does more than double that, right? He's like, how about seven times? That's a lot. But Jesus responds to Peter's question, no, not seven. You must forgive 77 times, which is shocking. He takes Peter's number and he multiplies it by 11, 77 times. It goes way beyond what Peter or the rabbis would have ever just even conceived in their imagination, 77 times. Times And actually, I think Jesus chose that number very specifically for very specific reasons. I think there are three reasons, at least, that I can think of why Jesus says 77. I'll give you the first two now, and we'll get to the third a little later on. So first, Jesus chose 77 because it's so high, you're going to lose count getting there. He doesn't literally mean, okay, count up, tally everyone, number 78, you don't have to forgive. No, his point is When someone sins against you, forgive, forgive, forgive. And then when you get tired of forgiving, keep forgiving until you lose count. Keep on going. And then that fits with the second reason I think he chose 77 is it's a symbolic number biblically for perfection. Seven is the biblical symbol, symbolic number at least, of wholeness, of completeness, of perfection. This is why uh, in Revelation, the number of the beast, right, the enemy of God is 666. Because the whole point is, he's short of God's glory in every way. He's not seven. He's six, six, six. And so seven is a number of perfection. And 77 is like saying perfect perfection. That's the kind of forgiveness Jesus is commanding. An infinite forgiveness. It's perfect. It never ends. That's what he commands from his disciples. And Jesus is well aware that's crazy. He's well aware. That doesn't make any sense in this world we live in. So he tells a story to explain. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So remember, right now, we're just getting the puzzle pieces. We're just seeing the details that's in here. And the first detail we see is Jesus describes a specific kind of relationship. He describes a hierarchy. We have a king, an authority, one in charge, and we have a subject, a servant, someone who's under the king, someone who answers to the king. So as we get into the conflict, into the debt that we see here, uh, we have to remember this isn't like your buddy saying, hey, you know, remember that $20 you owe me? I really like it back. This is more like the IRS saying, you've defaulted on your taxes and we can throw you in prison. I think you need to pay. Right? So there's a relationship of authority here. There's a, a hierarchy to the relationship. And just one interesting detail we'll come back to later, but every major English translation actually leaves out a word that's present here in the original Greek. Uh, and uh, it's, I understand why they leave it out because it's, it's like, why is, what? What is, why is that word there? It makes for kind of an awkward translation, but the Greek uh, specifies this is a man king. 
a man king. And you're like, yeah, when you tell me a story about a king, I'm like, probably, probably a man king. But, but Jesus goes out of his way. He's overly clear that he wants you to know this is a man king. Okay, we'll come back to that. Verse 24. When he began to settle, this king, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. All right, here we get to the conflict, the, the debt that is owed. This servant owes an astronomical amount of cash. This is, this is, these numbers are crazy. So a, a talent was a, a measurement of money in these days by weight. So it's a measurement of money by weight. It's not a specific number of coins. We could roughly kind of approximate how many it would be in terms of coins, but it's, it's really just how heavy they are. I mean, how much money does it have to be that you stop counting the coins and you just start weighing the big heavy bag? And a talent, I mean, it's, it's all kind of rough measurements because there's some inconsistencies historically, but roughly in the neighborhood of 75 pounds. 75 pounds of coins was one talent. So if my math is correct, there will be a surprising amount of math in this sermon. We're talking about 750,000 pounds of money. And estimates to like convert that to modern uh, money are kind of all over the place. One, because, you know, it's... It's, we don't know if it's silver or if it's gold. We don't know uh, if it, this is a Roman talent or a Greek talent. So it's roughly 75 pounds. So uh, the numbers are all over the place. We're not quite sure. But for all intents and purposes, this is an infinite amount. It's an infinite amount. That's, that's the point Jesus is making. It is beyond comprehension. And I've got all kinds of questions. Uh, how did you manage to borrow that much money? Like, like, how did you move it from one place to another? Like, like... How many oxen or, or horses did you need to transport 750,000 pounds of money? What did you need it for? And how in the world did you lose it? I mean, this isn't like lost it in the couch cushions money. What did you do with it? But those aren't the questions we get answers to. Instead, we see the consequence of the debt. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, I love that. Since he could not pay, no kidding, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The man is punished with uh, total bondage. His whole life, family, everything is sold into bondage. He becomes a slave because he can't pay the debt. And obviously this, this bondage, it won't put a dent in the debt. The 10,000 talents, is not, it's not coming back to the king. He's just trying to recoup his losses as best as he can. And then the servant makes a plea. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, the, the math exercise we just did shows the hopelessness of this prayer. He's asking for patience. Be patient with me. If I'm in debt a couple billion dollars to Jeff Bezos, patience ain't going to help much. Right? Like, that, that's not the solution. Right? The, the debt will never be paid. It will take an eternity. So this is an empty plea. He claims I'll pay everything. He can't. 
He can't. And then we see the king's response, verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now notice the servant didn't even ask for forgiveness. He wasn't, you know, seeking that. It's, he didn't even consider the possibility of it. It simply came out of the king's heart. He had pity, so he forgave. And I want you to recognize one essential element of that forgiveness. Someone still has to own the debt. Someone has to own the debt. The money doesn't just magically disappear. 10,000 talents are gone. So who, who carries the debt? Who suffers the loss? The one who forgives it. The one who forgives is the one who takes the debt on themselves because that's what happens when you forgive. You take the loss. But the story doesn't end there. That's only half of it. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So here in the second half of the parable, we have a, a different relationship. Not a king and a servant, but two fellow servants. They're, they're equals. They're on the same level. There's no IRS here. This is more like your buddy who's like, hey, remember that $20 you owe me? I would like it back. So the relationship is different. There's also a different debt, 100 denarii. So it's not, that's actually not nothing. Uh, a denarius was, was one day's wages for a laborer. So this is 100 days wages, roughly a third of an annual salary. I mean, we're, we're talking in modern terms about a couple grand. That's, that's not nothing. That's not an insignificant amount unless you compare it to 750,000 pounds of cash. Just so we understand. So there, this is all roughly, because again, a talent is a big bag of money. There were roughly 6,000 denarii in a talent. And so, more math for you. That 6,000 6, times 10,000, that's 10,000 talents, was roughly 60 million days' wages. More math for you. That's 164,000 years of no vacation, no PTO, no sick days, daily wages. And this is 100 days wages, which sounds like a lot, unless we were just talking about 60 million days wages, which we were. We have a vastly different relationship. We have a vastly different debt. And we also see a different tactic here. He starts choking his buddy to get him to pay. Well, that's nice. It's, it's a mob shakedown, right? This is, this is your friend owes you 20 bucks and you call cousin Tony to come break his kneecaps. That's what's going on here. It's crazy. Everything here is different except for one thing. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. One thing and only one thing is consistent between these two halves of the story. The two men in debt make the exact same plea. They make the exact same plea. They beg for patience. 
But this time, it's actually within the realm of possibility. A hundred days wages ain't nothing, but with patience, that can be paid back. I mean, maybe even with some interest, you might make a little money on this. They make the same plea, but they get a different response. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. It's crazy how something can be both justice and injustice at the same time. Both justice and injustice. His fellow servant owed him a debt. He's within his rights to incarcerate him for that debt. He deserves for it to be paid back. But so obviously wrong in light of the debt he was forgiven. Surely, surely mercy should beget mercy. And the other servants, they recognize this injustice and they go to the king, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had happened. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. When the king finds out what happened, he punishes this first servant, this unforgiving servant, to an eternal torment. I say torment because it's hidden in the English, but the word for jailers there is literally torturers. You know, this isn't, you know, a friendly confinement. This is, you know, Princess Bride, the pit of despair, right? That, that's, what he's, that's where he's sending him. And I say eternal because he has to pay, he has to stay until he pays all his debt and he owes an infinite debt. So the sentence was eternal because it will never be repaid. We'll come back to verse 35 later, but that's that's the parable, and we need to ask now, what's, what's the picture? What is Jesus showing us with the story? And I, I hope some of you see already what's going on here, what Jesus is doing. But, but very clearly, this, this parable is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's, it, it's, that's what's on the, the puzzle box. It's what all the pieces add up to, the, the message at the very heart of the Christian faith. The message that changes everything. That if when your faith is in this message, you become a Christian. And that is the message that changes everything about your life ahead of you. This is a picture of the gospel of the kingdom. And we know that for so many reasons. But we'll just start in verse 22. So Jesus said, I don't say forgive seven times, but 77 times. Remember I mentioned there's, there's three reasons why Jesus says 77 Reason one, you'd lose count getting there. Reason two, it's a sim symbolic of perfection, of perfect forgiveness. Reason number three, forgiveness is about the undoing of the curse of sin. It's about the undoing of the curse of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, all the way back in Genesis chapter four, which is one chapter after the fall 
of humankind. After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and the whole creation fell into sin and was under the curse of sin. So right after that, after the Cain and Abel fiasco, we get this horrible picture of how bad things get in a fallen world, in a world cursed by sin. There's this man, a descendant of Cain. His name is Lamech. And someone sins against him with a a minor offense. And he responds with an infinite vengeance. This is what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. This is the full outworking of the curse of sin from Genesis 3. That's what Genesis 4 is showing us. It's this, this snowball of depravity. Things get worse and worse in a fallen world to the point where Lamech is exulting in vengeful violence. Someone gives me a scratch, I'll murder them. 77-fold retribution. That's life under the curse of sin. That's life in a fallen world. But forgiveness is about undoing the curse of sin. And Jesus knows his Old Testament and he's saying, life under the gospel is just the opposite. That old curse is being undone. Limitless vengeance is being replaced with limitless forgiveness. That's the gospel. And so he shows us a parable. He gives us a parable to understand the gospel. And I'm going to focus, if you're a note taker, this will be helpful, on five specific ways. There's more. I'm going to give you five specific ways this parable paints a picture of the gospel. Number one, the gospel is about a relationship between a servant and a king. The gospel is about a relationship between a servant and a king. It's about a hierarchy. God is our creator. He made everything. He rules everything. And he he cobbled together these little specks of dirt and breathed life into them. And that's us. He gave us everything we ever needed. These tiny little mud people. As I said in a sermon a few weeks ago, he's the goat, greatest of all time, and we're the grasshoppers. It's basically what Isaiah 40 says. In verse 21 here, we actually get a glimpse of who the king is in the parable. So Peter calls Jesus Lord in verse 21. That's how he starts his address, which is, it, it, sometimes it just means sir. But I think here it's significant because that word Lord appears five more times in this passage. Now, again, the English translation usually kind of covers it up because it translates the word master, but it's the same exact word. The, the king is called a king at the beginning, and every other time he's called Lord or master, same word. And that's what Jesus is called at the very beginning of the passage because the parable is about a Lord and Jesus is that Lord. He is that king. And remember, I mentioned the weird thing that uh, Jesus specifies, this is a, a man king. Why does he say that? Well, I think the implication, what Jesus wants us to think about is what if this was a divine king? This is just a man king. Imagine a God king. And that's Jesus. The relationship at the heart of the gospel is a hierarchy. It's not your buddy who owes you 20 bucks. It's not even the IRS. This is the king of kings, your creator to whom you owe everything. 
The gospel is about that relationship. Second, like in the, gospel, like in the parable, the gospel is about an infinite debt. The gospel is about an infinite debt. Though God made us, though he gave us everything we have ever needed, he has blessed us with bounty and joy. We rejected him and we scorned his glory and we said, no, no, thank you. We owed him gratitude and glory for every good gift he's ever given. And we instead rejected him and spat in his face. So a financial metaphor is particularly appropriate here to describe what's happened. We have failed to pay. We have failed to pay. We were given an infinite abundance, and yet we squandered it. We cast it aside, and the Bible calls that sin. We've sinned against our king, and we owe an infinite debt. So thirdly, the gospel is about a just punishment. It's about a just punishment. This servant was sentenced to bondage, to slavery. His whole life was cast into the depths of slavery. John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave. To sin. That's our punishment because we can't pay the debt. We're slaves doomed to eternal torment in hell because we owed an infinite sum and we deserve an infinite sentence. And just like the servant does here, what we often do in response is try to self-justify. Try to say, be, be patient, God. I'll make it up to you. I'll find a way. I can do it. I, I'll figure this out. And it's just grasping at straws because we, we can never pay God back. And yet fourth, the gospel is about the mercy of a king who gives free and unsolicited forgiveness. There's a word here in, in verse 27. I want you to see. So verse 27, it says, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Why does the king release the servant? Why does he forgive him? Not because the servant had just the right plea. Not because he was going to get his money back. Not for any other reason than the compassion in his own heart. It flowed from the heart of the king when he looked at his servant to forgive his debt. And actually that word that's translated pity here is elsewhere in Matthew, usually translated compassion. We've, we've seen it many times in Matthew's gospel in chapter 9 when Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In Matthew 14, when Jesus saw 5,000 hungry people in the desert and he fed them because he had compassion on them. In Matthew 15, when Jesus saw 4,000 hungry people in the desert, he had compassion on them. It's the same word every time. And that word, every single time it appears in Matthew's gospel, it's about how Jesus feels about his people. It's about his heart for his people. Every single time except this one here in Matthew 18, where we know, we've seen already, it clearly is also about Jesus. Jesus is the king who has pity on us. Because of that pity, because of that love, and compassion, he has moved to forgive every debt with sheer grace. 
And remember what that means. Remember what that means. What it means to forgive is the one who forgives takes the debt on themselves. It means he has to bear it. He has to carry the burden. He owns the debt because someone has to. And on the cross, that's exactly what he did. He took our debt on his shoulders and he paid every last cent. Colossians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who were dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We try to pay this debt, but we never can. And yet the heart of the gospel is Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the truth, the joy, the wonder of the gospel. And it actually gets even better. Because we know in the Bible that the gospel isn't just that he forgives our debt and we get to like start over at zero. Like we get a blank slate or a second chance that we might mess up again. He pays the sum and he also fills our accounts with his righteousness. I got married uh, almost 10 years ago now. And that was a very special day for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of those reasons related to my financial situation. So I graduated college loaded with debt. But my wife graduated college debt-free with some savings, some cash flow. And when we said, I do, a lot of amazing things happened. (laughs) One of those amazing things was that my debt became hers. (laughs) And her surplus, her savings became mine. And that's the gospel. The king does not just pay our debts. He doesn't just cover our sin. He gives you the wealth of his righteousness. For those who trust in Christ, whose debt is paid, know that Christ has also filled your accounts. You don't stand before God a blank slate. You don't stand before God someone who's got a second chance, hope it it works out this time. If you are in Christ, you stand before God perfectly righteous. He doesn't see someone who's trying their best. He sees the righteousness of his own son. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is about a servant and a king. It's about an infinite debt. It's about a just punishment. It's about unsolicited, free forgiveness. Fifth and finally, the gospel is about a change that should happen in us. The gospel is about a change that should happen in us. Mercy begets mercy. See, our habit is 
to do what the servant did. When we're wronged, we want to punish the one who wronged us. We want to do what Lamech did and say, you give me a scratch, I'll hit you back even harder. Our habit is to pursue retribution. We want those who wrong us to get what they deserve. But the gospel isn't about getting what you deserve. A few years ago, I saw a courtroom video I don't think I will ever forget. Uh, It was during the trial of Larry Nassar, the man who had committed unspeakable abuses uh, as the physician for USA Gymnastics. Uh, And the video uh, in particular was about a man, was of a man who was the father of three of the victims. And he asked the judge for one thing. He asked the judge to be allowed to spend one minute in a locked room with Larry Nasser. And you could see the pain and the fury on this man's face. And the judge declined his request, and the father lunged across the room trying to get at Nasser right then and there. Bayless wrestled him to the ground. It is one of the most heartbreaking things you'll ever see. There was another courtroom video during the Larry Nasser trial that left an even more powerful impression on me. It was a woman, one of the victims, who was wronged. And she gave the final testimony in the trial. And part of her testimony, she spoke directly to Nasser, directly to the man who had wronged her so horribly. And this is what she said. She said, Larry, the Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. That's a woman who experienced awful abuse at the hands of an awful man, a man who owes her a considerable debt, and yet she knew she had been forgiven an infinite debt. I don't have any condemnation for that father who lunged across the table at Larry Nasser. My heart goes out to him. His reaction is justified. He deserved to have his face rearranged by that father. But the gospel is not about getting what you deserve. Mercy begets mercy. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. And that's why Jesus tells this parable. So we understand clearly what life in the gospel of the kingdom looks like. How we ought to live in response to this infinite debt we've been forgiven. And that's where he concludes. Verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 
so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus has told a parable about life in the kingdom, life under the gospel, and very simply, life under the gospel means forgiving as we've been forgiven. So that is what we must do, brothers and sisters. Our inclination is always going to be retribution. Like the servant in the parable, we want to punish each other. And sometimes that's going to be outright hostility. Right? Sometimes it might be violence. More often in nice Christian circles like ours, it's going to look something more like the silent treatment. I'm giving them the cold shoulder. I'm not going to tell them I'm mad. I'm not going to yell and curse at them because I know I'm not supposed to, but I need them to know I'm angry, so cold shoulder. Or maybe you punish them in private by slandering them to your friends or your spouse. Or maybe you just stay up late at night thinking of one zinger, one line to say to them so they know how awful they really are. That's how we handle when we're sinned against. And everyone in this room has been sinned against and it will happen again. So where does the power to forgive come from? How do we do what Jesus says? Well, first and foremost, we must see how petty, puny, and paltry the, the debts we are owed are in comparison to the debt we've been forgiven. They don't compare. The gospel produces a new way of life. The curse is being undone. So as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, love keeps no record of wrong. And Jesus tells us exactly what we need to do when we realize this, when we say, God, you've forgiven me an infinite debt and I've been sinned against and a, a small debt. Jesus tells us what to do. He says, well, first, every one of you. He's specific, no exceptions. No, you know, I forgave him last time. It's his turn. No, he's done this too many times. I'm all out of forgiveness. No, 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 77 times. And notice he's specifically here talking about when your brother sins against you. So this is even harder than some random stranger you need to forgive. This is someone who is in your church. Someone who's a fellow Christian. Someone who should be like family who you live with, worship with. It's much harder to forgive someone who's supposed to be like family when they wrong you. And more than that, he doesn't just say forgive. He says from the heart, not just in your heart. You actually have to go and tell them, I forgive you. And not just in your heart, but from the heart, not with empty words, not with Christian platitudes. Yeah, we all make mistakes. Whatever. No, no, no. You can't just paper over the problem. Here's what you must do. You must forgive in such a way that you take the debt on yourself. You must forgive in such a way that you own the loss. You take it because that's what Jesus did for you. Parkway Church, brothers and sisters, this is what life under the gospel looks like. And if we are unwilling to do it, Jesus is clear that we will, in fact, pay the debt that we owe him. Not in a sense as if God removes our forgiveness because we didn't do it quite right, but simply because real mercy begets real mercy. 
So there's no reason to believe we've actually received the mercy of God if it doesn't produce a change in us by extending mercy to one another. So three very quick questions as we close. First, have you received Christ's mercy? Do you know this king you have wronged? Have you felt the burden of your infinite debt to him? And have you looked to the cross and basked in the fathomless oceans of his grace? That's where it all starts. Do you know this king? And do you know his mercy? Second question. Have you asked forgiveness from those you've wronged? Maybe they're even in the room today. Have you asked forgiveness from those you've wronged? Jesus already said, Matthew 5, don't wait. If you're giving a gift at the altar, leave your gift and go reconcile with your brother or sister. Don't waste time. Take care of it. Don't come to worship unless you take care of it. If you've been guilty of wrongs, go and ask forgiveness. Don't wait. Third and final question. Have you forgiven those who have wronged you? from your heart? Have you forgiven those who have wronged you from your heart? James Smith, the slave I mentioned at the beginning, prayed for the soul of the man who lashed him 100 times. He prayed that God would forgive him. And you might wonder, how do we know that? How do we know that? Because the overseer who had lashed him 100 times overheard his prayers and his heart was pierced by the thought that God could have mercy on even him. And he begged Smith to forgive him, which he did, and then he helped him escape from slavery because mercy begets mercy. So may we be a church where the mercy of Christ we've received produces mercy in us toward one another. Let's pray. God, you are full of grace. We might think our sins are bottomless, but somehow your mercy is deeper and greater. Somehow you go even beyond the horrible sin in every heart in this room, and you call and you make us not just better, but you make us your children. And God, we pray that that wonderful mercy and grace would change us. We wouldn't just be inspired by it, but that we would be really, really changed to be a people who revel in the gospel and extend its grace to one another. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.